The following message was brought to you by the gifts and love offerings of the people of Rancho Baptist Church in Temecula, California. This message was recorded during our regular Sunday morning worship service. And today we have our discipleship pastor, Lou Dawson, bringing us the Word of God from James chapter 1, and he's talking about how sin works. Let's join Lou now in his message. Well, good morning. I'm Lou Dawson. I'm the pastor of discipleship here at Rancho Baptist Church. And Pastor Jason and his family are on vacation this week, and in his absence, it's my privilege to bring the Word of God today so that we can all consider it and apply it to our own hearts. Do any of you guys really get tired of trials? I do. (laughs) I know that from time to time, I certainly, yeah, you too, Sandra, you've had a few of those, right? Yeah, I, I, I grow weary of them, and... Uh, Over the course of my life, it seems like there have been certain periods of time where the trials and accompanying suffering seem to stack up like cars heading home from work on Interstate 15. You know what that's like. And periodically, it feels like my life is stalled in the middle of 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 a trial traffic jam. You know, all of us who identify with this occasional weariness, we... We take comfort that a large host of biblical characters uh, suffered along with us. The Apostle Paul exhorted his chief disciple, Timothy, to suffer hardship as a good soldier of Jesus Christ along with him. Paul seemed to live perpetually in a state of painful trials. And the writer of Hebrews sought to console his readers by pointing out that Jesus himself was tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. From the very beginning of his ministry, as he was tempted in the desert, to the very end of his ministry at Gethsemane, Jesus was tried and tempted. Indeed, he was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, as Isaiah had predicted so many years before. Now, James, the half-brother of Jesus, wrote the letter that we call by his name, James, to a group of Jewish believers who were similarly involved in all sorts of trials. And in order to gain an understanding of what they're going through with, what they were going through at the time, turn with me in your Bibles to the introduction of this letter in James chapter 1, verse 1. James 1, 1. And James starts out his letter this way. He says, James, a bondservant of God, of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes who are dispersed abroad. Greetings. This is a very standard, unremarkable, first century greeting that was used in letters. Really nothing remarkable here. But, But notice the very first subject that James addresses in verse 2. Consider it all joy, my brethren when you encounter various trials. So trials were, they were front and center. They were a central issue with the believers that James was addressing here. And by addressing them as my brethren, he was including himself in one of the, as one of those experiencing these trials along with him. We also gleaned some clues about how James's readers were responding to these trials. The fact that he commanded them to think about these trials as a joy indicates that, guess what? They were probably doing exactly the opposite. 
James's audience was probably not at all happy about the suffering coming their way, and some of them were truly grumbling about these trials. We gather some further clues about James' readers' response to their trials in James chapter 1, verse 13. Move forward a few verses there. Where he commands them and he says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. You see, not only were these believers unhappy with the trials that God was allowing to come their way, but some of them were angry about them as well. Rather than rejoicing in their suffering, they were angrily accusing God of being the one to blame for their pain. They were refusing to take responsibility for their unrighteous responses to trials and blaming others for their sin. And in doing so, they were loudly proclaiming their doubts about God's goodness and God's love for them as well and His sovereignty. This is called, it's called blame shifting. And all of us have inherited this sinful skill from Adam and Eve who were the first in a long line of very accomplished blame shifters. In the verses that follows, James corrected his readers' errant theology and their practice, helping them to understand the true nature of how sin operated in the midst of their temptations. And with this in view, the title of this morning's sermon is How Sin Works. And our text is James chapter 1, verses 13 through 16. Please follow along with me as I read this passage out loud. James says, he says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. And when lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Before we dive into this portion of God's Word, let's pray. Lord, we are here to worship You this morning uh, because You are worthy of praise and honor and glory. And Lord, the reason why we want to look at this text is because as part of that worship, we want to honor You by hearing what you say and seeking to obey you in those things out of a heart of love. So, Lord, reveal your truth to us and strengthen our hearts to both understand and obey you, again, out of a heart of love. Do these things for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, referring to your message outline again, the first thing that we need to consider as we seek to understand James's instructions to his readers is the difference between trials and temptations. And interestingly, there's only one Greek word used here seven different times in James chapter 1, 2 through 16. And this Greek word can be translated either trial or temptation, with the context dictating which meaning is correct. Now, the difference between a trial and a temptation involves how a person responds to the suffering that is the part of either one. 
Now, when a Christian responds to suffering by, by rejoicing in it, by patiently enduring it, and by trusting the Lord in the midst of it, this is a trial. And you'll notice that this word is translated like that in verse 2 and verse 12. And James lays out the result of responding in a godly manner to the suffering of trials. Such Christians will gradually become mature and complete in their Christian faith. That's in James 1 verse 4. And be blessed and approved by God. That's in James chapter 1 verse 12. Now in contrast to that, when a believer responds to suffering with with unbelief and anger and grumbling and, of course, blame-shifting, then this is a temptation. James so translates this same word there that way in verse 13 and verse 14. Now, notice also in verse 13 that he rebukes those who are blame-shifting in the midst of their suffering, accusing God even as they respond sinfully. James pointedly tells these believers that that he pointedly tells them that they need to stop accusing God of tempting them, pointing out that God cannot be tempted and he never tempts anyone. And then James drills down and helps these Christians understand how sin actually operates in the midst of their temptation. And this is where we'll spend the bulk of our time this morning because Understanding how sin works in the midst of temptation is critical for us who desire to grow in loving obedience to our Lord. So having corrected the errant response and theology of temptation practiced by some of his congregation, referring to your message outline, James presses on to help his readers understand the true source of their sinful responses to temptation. Notice again what he says in verse 14. He says, But each one is tempted when he is carried in a way enticed by his own lust. So there it is. The, the true source of sinful responses to temptation is lust. So what's the lust that he's referring to here in this, in this passage? Some of you who are reading either the uh, ESV or the New King James Version will notice that they translate this word desire, and either translation is, is very, very good. The Greek word used here has the idea behind it of, of strong desire. That's the meaning behind it. And the strong desire can be either good or it can be bad. Again, with the context dictating which meaning is being used here. Biblical authors use it both ways. They use it in a good sense, and they also use it in a bad sense. Now, in the case of our passage here in James, the lust or strong desire that James refers to here is pretty obviously of the evil variety. And according to James, these lusts are what they cause a person to respond sinfully in the midst of temptation. These strong desires can be quite a few variety of things. A lust can be a desire for some object that a person, they want it so much that they're willing to sin to obtain it. A lust could be for 
It could be for a house. It could be for a car that you must have and you're depressed and angry when you can't get it. A lust could be for a strongly desired marriage partner that you must have and you're willing to compromise in order to obtain it. Later on in James, in James chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, he commented that anything which we're willing to quarrel and engage in conflict about is actually sourced in a lust of some sort. Lust can also start out as legitimate, God-pleasing desires that, that morph into sinful lusts. In marriage, men can have such a, a strong desire to be respected, which is a good God-given desire, but that they respond by becoming sinfully angry and bitter and resentful when they feel like they don't receive that respect. And likewise, women can have such a, such a strong desire to be loved. And again, that is a good God-given desire that they become sinfully angry and bitter and unforgiving when they feel like they don't receive that love. In both cases, God-given desires have morphed into lusts. When a person is willing to sin when they don't get what they want. Now what James is saying here to his readers about temptation had to be quite shocking. Some of his readers were were blaming uh, something outside of themselves for the sinful responses that they were having to temptation. In this case, they were blaming God. But James pointedly corrects their errant thinking. He told them that their sinful responses originated in the lustful desires of their own hearts. The cause was not external, but internal. And this is completely consistent with what the rest of Scripture teaches. In Matthew 15, verse 19, here's what Jesus told His disciples. He said, For out of the heart come evil desires, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, and slanders. You see, the heart is the home of our of our desires, our will, our thoughts, and our emotions. And for sin to be eradicated in our lives, it must be dealt with at the desire and thought level. That's the heart. This is where sin originates. Outward actions are simply the visible manifestations of lustful desires and thoughts in our hearts. James also provided another very important insight about sinful lusts in verse 14. Notice that he said that each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. You see, lusts are always highly individualized. What is a sinful lust for one person may not be at all for another. Why is that? It's because sinful lusts are they're overlaid and they're reinforced by a person's past experiences. 
The notion that a person's past determines his present actions is not a biblical concept, but a person's past does definitely influence and strengthen their lusts. So James has reminded his readers about the true source of their sinful responses to temptation, which was each person's lust. But referring to your message outline, he also discussed the operation of lust during temptation in verse 14 as well. Notice that he commented that each person is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. We really don't know a whole lot about James, the writer of this letter, but one thing we can discern from the phrases that that James uses here in this text is that he certainly knew something about, of all things, fishing. Carried away and enticed are both fishing terms. Now, this term carried away has the idea behind it of an initial struggle, but a short, after a short time of this struggle, there's a, a giving up and then finally just kind of being drug away by it. This word was used as the process of, of catching and reeling in, reeling in fish. I'm not much of a fisherman now, but I uh, fished for trout a fair amount when I was a young boy. And when you initially hook a trout, there's this furious struggle of the fish that goes on as he struggles and fights being caught. Sometimes I remember trout even jumping out of the water when, when you first hook one of those things. And, but as the fight goes on, the fish grows tired. And if the battle goes on long enough, it eventually it just quits struggling altogether and you just reel it, reel it right in. Now the second term that James used, the word translated enticed, has the idea behind it of, of, of being lured and seduced by some sort of highly attractive bait. And again, from my younger days, I can remember carefully baiting a fish hook, you know, with one of those bright pink salmon eggs. You put it on there and then you cast it, cast it into the stream. And many times you could actually see it. The trout would, would circle around it and kind of look at it. And then, and then they, they'd take a little quick nibble at it. And on the fishing pole, you could feel it. It was a little, little jerk on the, on the fishing pole. And usually the trout would nibble on it a few more times. And then I guess when the bait became irresistible, they'd take it and they were hooked. Now with both of these terms, James deliberately chose word forms indicating that this was an ongoing, this carrying away enticing was an ongoing, continuing type process. It didn't just happen like that. It, it evolved. And these word pictures are exactly how lust operates within us. When lust enters our thoughts, we have a choice about what we can do with it. You see, if we begin to kind of toy with it and kind of nibble at it a little bit and kind of roll it over in our mind and play with it a little bit and allow our thoughts to be lured by the bait, we end up being hooked. We end up being hooked. The minute we allow and participate in the enticement, that's when 
we have sinned. There may be no outward actions or no outward reaction, but make no mistake, sin is now in play. But there's always a choice here. If we recognize the bait, recognize the enticement and the lust for what it is, and immediately refuse it, we're not hooked and we've avoided sin. We'll discuss this in more detail towards the end of our time together this morning. So having helped his readers understand the source of sinful responses to temptation and the operation of these lusts, referring again to your message outline, James moves on to discuss the inevitable progression of indulging lust in verse 15. The first thing we notice in this verse is that James has changed the illustration in order to help his congregation better grasp this progression. Back in verse 14, James uses this fishing, these fishing analogy to highlight his point. And verse 15, he changes the illustration to the childbirth process. Now, those of you who are moms, you know all too well that your children didn't just appear in the womb one day and boom, they were born the next. Didn't work that way, right? No, you became pregnant and you carried that child for many, many months before they were born. And especially during the first part of the pregnancy, there was a real live person growing inside you, even though there was very little external evidence about the child's existence. But the child was indeed conceived. He was there. And with an equal degree of assurance, that child would surely grow in the womb and be born into this world eventually. Now, in a similar manner, when lusts are entertained and when they're, when they're nurtured, then sin has inevitably been conceived. You may not see it in a person's actions, but make no mistake, sin is alive and well in the heart of the person indulging their own lusts. And sin, once conceived, will inevitably grow and manifest itself in sinful actions of various sorts. But it's important to understand that sinful actions are not the sin. They're just like the, they're like the warning light on the dashboard of a car. You know, you're driving along your way to go to the store and pick up some groceries and, you know, maybe the oil light flashes on, on, on the dashboard of your car. And that warning light is telling you that there's something really wrong with the engine in your car and you need to fix it right away. The problem is not the warning light, right? It's just simply telling you there's a serious problem somewhere in the engine. In a similar manner, sinful actions are the warning light on the dashboard of our lives, telling us there that there are problems with sinful lusts and thinking that are going on in our hearts and minds. Sinful actions are always rooted in issues of the heart. But James takes this progression even further. Unchecked, unrighteous lusts not only inevitably produce sin, but they also unavoidably give birth to death. 
Now, to understand what James was trying to communicate here, we must remember that his readers were all Christians. And Jesus promised that he, that he would save every person whom the Father had given him. No exceptions. We know that James, because of this, cannot be speaking about spiritual death here. But with equal certainty, we know that persistently entertaining and surrendering to sinful lust has deadly consequences. Such steadfast indulgence eventually brings forth death in the form of hopelessness, of loss, of usefulness, a dead conscience, broken relationships, squandered resources, ungodliness, and yes, even physical death. So now having soberly illustrated the inevitable progression of indulging lust, in verse 16, James issues a solemn warning. In a very short and abrupt fashion, he commands his beloved flock, do not be deceived, beloved brethren. And in the context of what James has just written, I think there are at least three facets to this warning. First, James was warning about allowing ourselves to be deceived into thinking that God was the one tempting them in the midst of their trials. God's incapable of this. And though he allows trials into a person's life, he has committed to always using them for a person's ultimate good. James wanted to make sure that his audience didn't make the error of blaming God for their temptations. And second, James was warning his readers about being deceived regarding the true nature of how sin operates. The source of sin, as we've talked about, is inside of us and it operates out of the heart. Sinful actions arise out of lustful desires and thoughts which wage war in our hearts. James was also warning about being deceived when we blame other people for our sin. Again, other people can stir up sinful passions in us, but they're not the source. The source of our sinful responses to temptation is lustful desires in our own heart. And third, James was warning his readers about being deceived regarding the deadly effects of indulging sin. Those who habitually indulge their lustful passions will reap a harvest of corruption and destruction. As the writer of Hebrews comments in Hebrews chapter 3, verse 13, he says, Sin hardens us through its deceitfulness. Sin promises happiness and freedom, but it delivers exactly the opposite of that. Habitual indulgence in sin produces a hard, selfish, obstinate heart towards God and towards others. It delivers a harvest of enslavement and bitterness, broken relationships, and sometimes even physical death. All of us do well to heed James' warning. Do not be deceived about the deadly consequences of sin. Well, all that remains at this point is thinking through how we should specifically apply the truths that James related in this passage. 
Though there are many possible applications that flow from this passage, I really like to focus on three of them. The first, as, as we have seen this morning, lustful desires are sourced in, or lustful desires are the source of sinful actions. Here's the first application. Whenever you detect a lust being stirred in your own heart, implement the immediate response that keeps it from becoming sin, which is repentance. That is what keeps it from going that way. Such repentance not only keeps us from sin, but it also it removes the power that these lusts manifest because they grow rapidly if we allow them to allure and entice us with them. So how does repentance work? Turn in your Bibles for a minute here to 2 Corinthians 7, verses 10 and 11. 2 Corinthians 7, verses 10 and 11. Now, speaking to the believers in the Corinthian church, the Apostle Paul commented, he said, For the sorrow that is according to the will of God, this sorrow produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation. But the sorrow of the world produces death. For behold, what earnestness this very thing, this godly sorrow has produced in you. It produced a vindication of yourselves. What indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what avenging of wrong. And everything you demonstrated yourself to be innocent in this matter. In this passage, the Apostle Paul gives us some very helpful insight into what true repentance really looks like. Now, notice in these verses that repentance and the resulting turning away from sin to God is actually produced by what Paul calls godly sorrow. Godly sorrow. For many years, I didn't, I didn't understand this. Godly sorrow is the first step of true repentance. Without godly sorrow, the results of repentance listed in verse 11 will be largely temporary or even absent. So what is this godly sorrow that is really, it's the source, it's the wellhead of true repentance? The word used here and translated sorrow or grief is essentially sadness. It's sadness. The same exact word is used in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 30, where Paul exhorts the Ephesians to not grieve or make sad the Holy Spirit by their sin. You see, when God's children sin, it makes the Holy Spirit sad. He's sad because he knows that Sin brings about destruction and bitterness. And, and like any good parent, the Holy Spirit wants what is good for us and what brings joy and peace in our life and brings glory to the Father. And thus, what godly sorrow is, is being saddened that our sin makes God sad. Let me repeat that. 
Godly sorrow is being saddened that our sin makes God sad. As an example in my own heart, I find that I'm I'm often tempted to be anxious about events that are happening in my own life. And this anxiousness is rooted in lustful desires to be in control, coupled with sinful doubt about God's love and care for me. Am I going to succumb by dwelling on these unrighteous desires and thoughts? Or am I going to repent? I've got a choice there when when I realize that's what's going on. Now, on my best days, which hopefully happen more than less, I immediately go to the Lord and pray something like, Lord, I sense the stirrings of anxiety in my heart. And you commanded me to be anxious for nothing. I've sinned against you in this way way too long by being anxious. And Lord, I do not want to make you sad anymore by being anxious. You see, that's what, that's the godly sorrow that produces those fruits of repentance. And when that godly sorrow happens at the moment of temptation, when sin is detected, I've avoided sin altogether and the godly consequences. So, in application, when the warning light of temptation lights up on the dashboard of your life, Respond immediately with godly sorrow. Lord, I do not want to make you sad anymore by this, which produces true repentance. Now, the second application this passage suggests is that we need to make a a regular habit of Holy Spirit-empowered tracing of sinful actions back to the lusts and wrong thoughts that produce them. In particular, when the, when the warning light of anger and irritation or frustration flickers on, bing, in our life, we need to examine our hearts regarding what desires or desire are going on and driving outward actions. I find that various forms of anger are the most frequent manifestations of sin that light up in the dashboard of my own life. I've been working on making this heart examination a habit of mine very diligently for the past six months or so. And though there is such a thing as righteous anger, I find that about about 99.9% of the time, that mine is of the unrighteous variety. Maybe you find that same thing as well. The most frequent lust that I find that I find behind the sinful anger in my own heart are lustful discontentment, fear, a lustful desire for comfort and a lustful desire for control. You undoubtedly noticed that I listed a number of lusts that can produce sinful anger in me. And sadly, all of us have 
variations of these lusts, and others too, there's almost an endless variety of them, at work in our own hearts, working in combination with each other, with some lusts stronger than others. One of the benefits of developing this, this internal spiritual discipline is that you'll begin to recognize lustful desire patterns in your own life. You'll undoubtedly find that you're particularly vulnerable, vulnerable to some specific lusts. And you'll also begin recognizing situations that tend to lure and entice you towards fulfilling these lusts. And with this knowledge, you can avoid these situations altogether, prepare yourself ahead of time when you know that these temptations will be coming in play. But develop that pattern of working backwards when you spot something going on. What's going on in my heart? What's going, what am I thinking and desiring? The third and final application of this passage involves a very rapidly growing, incredibly destructive sin that is widespread in the secular world and unfortunately almost equally as prevalent in the church of Jesus Christ. And that is the sin of indulging pornography. At the root of this wickedness are heart issues rooted in sinful lusts and thinking, all of which have been habitually coddled and nourished. And for some, these lusts have been so vigorously pursued that the individual is enslaved. With this, this enslavement can capture both men and women. The way out of this sinful bondage is through careful, biblical, Holy Spirit-identified and empowered identification of individual heart issues which are in play, repenting of them and learning to put on righteous desires, thoughts, and actions in their place. And since lusts are always highly individualized and overlaid on each person's backgrounds, the most effective way of working with these issues is via one-on-one biblical discipleship counseling. That is by far the way that works the best. If this is you, and you want to be set free of this enslavement, please come talk to me or talk to one of the elders. We so much want to come alongside you and compassionately help you apply these truths of God's Word to your sin. And by the Holy Spirit's power, be set free once for all. Let's pray. Lord, we are all painfully aware of our tendency to yield to the temptation to sin. We wish it weren't so, but we know this is true. We thank You, Lord, that You, you gave James such, such keen and helpful insight into how sin works. Lord, with this understanding, we want to become wise 
to the lusts that operate so deviously in each of our hearts so that we might understand them, quickly repent of them, and pursue righteous thoughts, desires, and actions in their place. Cement these truths in our hearts, Lord, so that we might learn to walk in a manner worthy of the calling which you have called us as your children, pleasing you in every respect. We ask this, Lord, in Jesus' powerful name. Amen. Hey, thanks for being with us today. It's always a pleasure to serve you with this CD ministry. Here at Rancho Baptist Church, our mission is to glorify God by making disciples who love God, love others, and live to reach their world for Christ. And if you have any questions regarding this sermon, or just perhaps knowing God in a deeper way, don't hesitate to give us a call. Our phone number is area code 951-676-2911. Or you can reach us on the web at www.ranchobaptistchurch.org. That's www.ranchobaptistchurch.org. Have a great day in the Lord, and God bless you as you continue to walk with Him.